Welcome to the Late Fragments podcast, in which I talk to remarkable octogenarians about sex, politics, money and religion. Remarkable doesn't have to mean famous. You may not have ever heard of Richard Holloway, but what he has to say is certainly worth hearing. Bishop of Edinburgh from 1986 to 2000, the 89-year-old is author of more than 20 books, including a best-selling memoir, Leaving Alexandria, which won him the Penacoli Prize in 2013. Last July, I travelled with my 16-year-old son to Edinburgh, where I myself had been at university. Steeped in my own nostalgia, I loved visiting Richard in his flat and going back into his past with him. We sat, we drank tea, we talked about everything. The conversation isn't necessarily as structured as others have been since, but we certainly covered all the bases in a very organic way. At a time when the world urgently needs wise and compassionate leadership, Holloway's is, I think, a really important voice. Clever, empathetic and challenging, he is, above all else, devastatingly humane. It is a harsh world, indescribably cruel, he says, but it is also a gentle world, indescribably beautiful. I hope you enjoy listening. So we're going to talk about um, the topics of conversation that the rules of polite conversation say that we shouldn't. I'm interested to know, as a little boy, whether you were obedient or disobedient? I think I was quite um, quite an untroubled little boy. I was deeply loved by my mother and I think that gives you an immense security. I, I had a lot of childhood diseases. We were very poor um, and I picked up rheumatic fever three times which is a, a disease of poverty And I think that it's often said that if a child spends a long time in bed um, with an illness, it makes them imaginative, introverted. So I think that probably started happening for me. Um, We lived in a room and kitchen in a famous street in Alexandria called Random Street. Um, But as a a kid, you're unaware... um, of the depth of poverty, but I had a very passionate, loving, complicated, troubled mother who'd been an orphan, and I think that gave me a kind of um, security about life. Um, So I I don't think I was rebellious in any bolshy kind of a way. I think I just did stuff as seemed right to me. Um, And... um, as a little boy, I was quite a sunny creature, walked alone um, often on the hills above the Vale of Leven, had a few pals, um, but no, I think that um, my life was pretty uncomplicated for a bit. You were poor, and yet you weren't aware of it. Was it the love that made you unaware of it, do you think? That... Um, and the fact that most other people um, 
in the street were much the same. Uh, I mean, my father worked. Um, my mother worked as well. She did home help stuff. She cleaned other people's houses. So I, there was always food on the table. I can remember the big pots of soup she made. Um, so it was... Um, and we were... I had two sisters I enjoyed. One five years older. And my younger sister and I, we were... We were pals, um, so I had pals in the street. I went the messages for Granny Watson across the road. So to that extent, you, you kind of accepted it. And you were fed and clothed? I was fed and clothed. Um, uh, I was looked after. Um, my father was a quiet but caring man. Um, but the mother, my mother was the kind of... the 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 beating heart of the family. She was a, um, she'd had a troubled life. Um, she loved me to bits. I can still remember some of her endearments. She used to call me her wee ton of bricks and things like that. So I think that gives, gives you uh, a tremendous sense of security. So everything else you can kind of cope with as you discover it, as you bumble your way through. And you were 14 years old when you decided that you would like to go and train for the priesthood. Yep. We weren't a particularly religious family. There was a church we didn't go to, St Mungo's, Alexandria. <clears throat> and um, one day my weak cousin died of spinal meningitis um, and my mother went up to comfort um, my cousin's mother, Mary Ward. And she said to me, when you come for your dinner, lunch, uh, come to Mary Ward's in Mitchell Street because I'll be there comforting her. And I did and Father Mackay, who was the rector of St Mungo's Episcopal Church, came to arrange the funeral and he said to my mother, who's that boy? And she said, that's my son Dick. Can Dick sing? Ah, he's got a good voice. Will you come and sing in the choir? And that was it. So I, I went and joined the choir and a hero worshipped him. He was an unlikely hero for a wee boy. Um, he, had, he was tall um, he had an unconvincing comb-over. <laughs> he had a blotchy complexion. He was an alcoholic. <laughs> probably gay, although he never put a finger on me, although one of his pals did. Um, and he saw something in me, uh, and uh, so within 18 months, I said, I'd quite like to be a, a priest, um, and he said, OK, we'll send you to Kellam, which was this place in England had, that had been founded in the late 19th century by a remarkable man called Herbert Hamilton Kelly. He thought it odd that in the Anglican Church, God only called middle and upper class men into the ministry. So he started this system that took the poor, took poor boys, working class boys, and trained them and so that's where I went, age 14. And your parents' view on this decision? I can remember um, my father said, 
Dick will no stand in your way. Um, I think my mother, I think they were also secretly proud of it. Um, and my mother took another job uh, to buy me um, clothes and stuff. And she took me up to Queen Street Station in Glasgow, age 14, held my hand tight and put me on the train. My goodness. Mm. Did the tears stream down your face as you left? They didn't actually, although I was very, a very homesick creature. Um, I think I must have been partly excited. I don't remember crying. I remember her holding my hand tightly <clears throat> as we got off the bus at Waterloo bus station and walked to Queen Street. Um, but um, yeah, And then I was back in three months' time and everything had changed because um, Kellum was a big manor house um, outside Newark uh, that had been built by the manor Sutton family. Um, and to come from that back home to the room and kitchen, everything seemed tiny and shrunk. Um, but the love was still there. But inevitably... Um, it started creating a distance whenever a whenever a child from an intensely working class family gets educated there's always a kind of sorrow in the separation that happens you don't you don't own it but you know it's there because you, you mostly have the past left you know the love and the memories but you're growing and developing and thinking and reading, and it takes you away. So you were intoxicated in love with the idea, mm. yeah, the romantic ideal, yeah, of the given away life. But the vows of poverty and chastity and obedience were not vows that it turned out that you were someone who would be able to make. Is that fair? I think that's fair enough. <clears throat> um, who knows if they hadn't sent me to, <clears throat> if they hadn't sent me to Africa, um, I think they discovered um, I was in a restless state. Uh, I fell in love with another student at Kellum um, and kind of didn't know what had happened to me. And the effect it had on me was to um, bewilder me because I was bewildered by this, um, the feelings I felt for John Woodcock, as he was called. One of the Kellum fathers had just been made Bishop of Accra and he asked if there was anyone who could come and be my secretary, uh, his secretary. And they, they, they came and asked me if I, and I said, I jumped at it. So I, I went to Accra. Was your love that you mentioned for your fellow student, was it, was it an infatuation, a, a love from a distance, or was it a love that you acted on? I didn't act on it physically. Um, it meant that I loved being with him. I had no... It was an emotional crush. Um, uh, I had no physical desire for it. It's a weird kind of thing. Now, whether that would have happened, God knows. But um, um, let me finish the story about him, because um, 
The years passed. He spent most of his working life in South Africa. Um, and when I was elected Bishop of Edinburgh, the tradition is you go on a retreat, you go and spend a few days in uh, quiet reflection. And I went to a nunnery in Kent. Um, <clears throat> and when I arrived there, the mother superior said to me, there's an old friend of yours here. And it was him. I went into silence so we didn't speak, but on the final morning, I, I said this in the book, the final morning, I said, do you remember that holiday we took in Devon? And he said, we were in love. And I said, yes. Um, and drove away. I said, before I drove away, I said, can I do anything for you? And he said, I'd like a transistor radio. because he was leaving the order. He was going into Diggs and Durham and he was going to teach piano. And I sent him a, um, one of those wee, wee radios. Never heard back. And he died a few years ago out of the order. I wrote a wee article about him. Um, so, yeah. Isn't life funny? You were married by that, by the time you were ordained. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it was just a ghost from your past. It was, yeah. And it... Um, Yes, it was a deep emotion. I'd never had um, any sexual desires for people of the same sex. Um, so, so there was no sexual desire for him, but there was a, a deep spiritual need. Um, um, yes, it was a, a bit like David and Jonathan. <clears throat> you write um, very openly about your struggles with the flesh when you were at Kellum because you arrived a 14-year-old boy mm -hmm. and then... Hit puberty. Hit puberty. Mm -hmm. And so very early on, you were locked in a battle with yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that didn't get any better when you went to Accra. No, and in some ways it got worse. And it's, I mean, I, I'm a child of the church. It gave me... Uh, an education changed my life radically, but um, it got sex badly wrong, Christianity. Um, it, it, it's not as though it's, it's said this is a powerful urge <clears throat> and it can easily go wrong, you can hurt people. Um, it said, on the whole, God would rather you didn't do it. That was St. Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo. And I, I inhaled all this, I inhaled this notion that the real, true, heroic Christian um, didn't have sex, was celibate, was a monk. It kind of divided me, I guess, um, but it's a division that's deep in Christianity. It's deep in a lot of religions. I mean, the, um, 
It's why women have had such a hard time in history. Um, uh, because this great natural good force, also capable of going very, very badly wrong. Um, I think it's worth noting at this <clears throat> point as well that you were a little boy, very keen on going to the cinema. Um, and your mother used to take you to the cinema. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> so you had an idea, <clears throat> you had a sense of romance instilled in you from that, mm-hmm. presumably, mm-hmm. which you then also had to quash. The sense of, well, there's always a love story and a good Oh, film. sure, yeah, good movies. Um, although I remember one movie that had a big influence on me. Um, it was based on a A.J. Cronin novel called The Keys of the Kingdom with Gregory Peck um, uh, about Roman Catholic missionaries in China or Korea and that also inspired me with the religious romanticism and at at one point when I was toying with the idea of maybe leaving Kellam uh, this was before I was due to go into the army um, and it gave me it, it ignited the vocation a bit more so the movies gave me that kind of Romantic longing, but they also gave me the other romantic longing. Mm-hmm. Mm. They're all romantic longings for the kind of the ability to give your life away. Um, um, but as I've written, the trouble is you give your life away, the music rolls, the cinema screens close, but you're still there. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't life weird? Isn't it? Mm. So you came back from Accra, not back to Kellam, but into the priesthood in Glasgow. Yep. I did... Um, that was another funny... I really... When I left um, um, SSM in Accra, I decided... I thought that, you know, that was the whole... That bit of my life was over... I'd go to um, Aberdeen University for some reason. I picked Aberdeen. I got accepted. um, And I was going to go and read philosophy. Mm. And I wrote and told Francis Moncrief, who was the Bishop of of Glasgow. um, And he said, uh, no, no, he said, come back um, to Edinburgh Theological College and um, we'll ordain you. So I came back to... Edinburgh to theolo- and I did what I was told, uh, the habit of obedience, and did um, about 15 months at Edinburgh, and then was ordained to a curacy in Glasgow. Did you see in your work there a way that religion could alleviate the pains of poverty? Challenge it, yep. Um, not so much, I, I can see... The alleviation thing I can see much more now because I think that um, we're complicated creatures thrust into a universe we we don't understand, how it came to be, what it means, whether it means anything. Um, and a lot of it is terrible for a lot of people. And religion, there's no doubt at all, has been one of the sources not only of cruelty and hatred but of consolation and comfort. 
Was your faith challenged by the hopelessness that you saw? Yes, I lost God, um, but in a sense, I never lost Jesus. And in a sense, it didn't much matter um, because um, I found it difficult, as I still do, to believe that there is a kind of purpose to this strange universe, um, except the purpose we give it. Um, but but Jesus was a fighter. He, Jesus challenged um, oppressive politics, oppressive religion, and that was the kind of Jesus we followed. Um, um, so we banned the bomb, we fought for better housing, um, started a housing association, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Exhilarating too. I would like to take you to Edinburgh where you were, I believe, the first married rector of St Paul's. Old St Paul's, yeah. Old St Paul's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And while yeah. you were there, you started to break the rules a little bit. Mm. You married... Gay people. Gay people. Yeah. In 1972? I guess that was the first one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter and Richard. And divorcees too? Yeah. I'd been doing that even as a curate. I, without trouble. I mean, that, that's the intriguing thing. Um, again, maybe part of this not having had a systematic training, or maybe I was anyway indifferent to rules uh, that I thought damaged people. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd married, divorced people. Uh, the church changed its rules about all of that stuff um, over the years, and the Scottish Episcopal Church now has gay marriage. Um, uh, but I did my first gay marriage in 1972, Peter and Richard. Um, Can you tell me the story of how that happened? Richard Wadler um, was, uh, he was a surgical instrument maker at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary, a very quiet, withdrawn young man, um, Edinburgh boy, um, served at the altar uh, at Old St Paul's. I inherited him when I arrived there um, in 68. One day, uh, a man called Peter Unsworth, who was a male nurse in London, was invited to be interviewed um, as senior... Uh, very odd, actually. He was... They kept the label um, Sister Tutor at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary because he was a clever man. Um, and he was a churchman. He came up, was interviewed and got the job. And on his way back to Waverley Station, Old St Paul's is just above the station, he wandered into Old St Paul's um, where Peter Unsworth was doing the brasses uh, and asked if he would, uh, where Richard Wadler was doing the brasses, and Peter asked him if he would show him around the church. And by the time they'd finished that, they'd fallen in love. Mm -hmm. And he, he duly came 
uh, was appointed sister tutor at Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. Uh, and he and Richard came to me, though Peter did all the talking, uh, and I just preached a series of sermons on Christianity and the sexual revolution. <laughs> um, and he said, do you apply this thinking to gay people? And I said, uh, what, do you, what do you mean? And, and so he, he said, Richard and I would like to be married. Would you do that? Could you do that? And I said, well, not officially. I said, but I could do it in the eyes of God and in your eyes. Um, meet me in the Lady Chapel after Evensong. Um, and I read the prayer book Marriage Service over them. Um, I got them their first flat because uh, I got them a flat in Barony Street um, through the housing association we'd started. Um, and I buried them both still together. So there was a, a dissonance between yourself and the church that you served. Mm. But you silenced that dissonance? In terms of um, breaking what I thought were unjust rules, I, I did it. I married divorced people. Um, um, I was still... Th pretty theologically orthodox. Um, <clears throat> what kind of finished it, um, what tipped me um, into a much more radical post-religious kind of um, experience um, <clears throat> was the Lambeth Conference of 1998. Um, Every ten years, all the bishops in the Anglican Communion meet for a thing called the Lambeth Conference. It happens at Canterbury University. It used to happen at Lambeth Palace in the anyway. And you'd been ordained as Bishop of Edinburgh in 86? 86, yep. Um, the issue in 98 um, was the gay issue. Um, it turned into a hate fest um, uh, and the debate on the ordination of, of, of gay people was ugly. One bishop likened it to a Nuremberg rally. It, was, it really was horrifying. Um, um, and something kind of died in me. Um, I, I suppose for the first time I really confronted how cruel religion could be. came back to um, Scotland um, in 1998 and I wrote, I wrote a, a, an angry book, quite a good book still I think called Godless Morality, um, to challenge this, 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 this kind of thinking.
and it got me into a lot of trouble, not only with other archbishops, but with my own people in, in the, not all of them, but with my own people in the province. Um, and It's hard to praise a whole book, but loosely, Godless Morality, and I believe you'd written a book in 97 prior to that, prior to the conference called Dancing on the Edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. called for a re-evaluation of the church's moral teaching on sex. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Godless Morality is a great book which argues that we should leave God out of moral debate. Essentially did and as I say, it got me into a lot of trouble. There was a big conference in Dundee called the Anglican Consultative Council, which meets every umpteen years. Um, and I was denounced at that by the Archbishop of um, Southeast Asia, a very, um, a very, very reactionary Asian. Um, and I remember standing beside him in the urinal of all, I wrote about this as well. And he said, you are responsible for homosexuals burning in hell because you give them permission to have sex, to marry against God's judgment and you're sending them to hell. So your blood was really rising by yeah, now. Yeah. So the book came out of as a response to that. Um, and at this conference in Dundee, George Carey, dear old George, denounced the book as heretical. Um, um, but what it did was it strengthened the opposition to me in Scotland, in my, in my own church. And there was a move to um, get rid of me. And I I experienced it particularly when we went down to the borders one weekend and, um, and they wouldn't speak to me, uh, they wouldn't give me the kiss of peace, um, they wouldn't shake my hand going out the door afterwards. Um, and I remember saying to Jeannie, we better get home. Um, and next day, the front page in The Scotsman uh, was um, that priest and two or three others had called for my resignation um, and declared the Diocese of Edinburgh vacant because of my attitudes. Interestingly, to drugs as well as to gays. Well, of course, you were the Bishop of Edinburgh at a time when AIDS was... Oh, God, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think Edinburgh was the AIDS capital of Europe. Yeah, in, in yeah the, that's what they called... In and the it was it was more intravenous drug stuff than gay stuff, although it was a bit of both. And the church was at its best. Um, uh, the, uh, Christian Edinburgh ruled its... There was a, a, a bit of it that, you know, said this is God's judgment on gay people. I remember saying to one or two of them, having debates with them... Um, why doesn't God contrive a specific virus for gun runners? And, um, um, but no, I mean, it's all sex that gets... Um, but th th we did that well, actually. Edinburgh rose well to that. But by that time, I was kind of weary of it. Um, and um, retired in the year 2000... And had 
the whole thing had kind of worn away and I just walked. Um, religion now to me is an art, not a science. It's, it's the way we tell stories and write music and paint pictures to try and express the complexity of our own condition. So why kill each other over it? Why not just interpret, um, um, tell the, the stories, listen to the parables? Um, uh, and I, yeah, it's just weird, isn't it? I mean, the, the sense that there's nothing there and it means nothing and yet it's generated us with a passion for meaning and purpose. How do you get your head around that? So it, it, it kind of nibbles at you. Um, the one thing I'm sure about is that if you have an over... If you scientise religion, um, it can become cruel. But if you treat it as an art form, it can be immensely creative and kind and revolutionary. Um, so I can't, I've never been absolutely able to walk. I mean, church doesn't do much for me now, but I still go. But I, I prefer Rose and Paul's when it's just doing its own thing. Um, and you have a faith still ultimately in humanity mm. or not that's patchy I mean mm. um, they fuck you up your mum and dad <laughs> they do not mean to but they do they fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you <laughs> but they were fucked up on their turn but yes it's what the, the one doctrine I'm sure about is the doctrine of original sin not Adam and Eve and the apple but the fact that we're deeply flawed creatures capable of immense courage and compassion and love and intense cruelty. And we are complex creatures, um, which is why we need to be careful about ourselves. And everything we've been talking about illustrates that. Um, so um, in us, the universe is thinking about itself. It may have taken... 14 billion years for that to happen. It's been blundering its way through space all that time and it comes up with us. Isn't it weird? Isn't it weird? I mean, I mean it's just, it's utterly baffling, which is why um, I, I'm not entirely godless, why I don't do Dawkins, because they're evangelical in their certainty that there's nothing there that means nothing. How the fuck can you know? <laughs> How can any of us know any of mm. it? You're now 88. Mm. Yep. And you still are very intellectually curious, constantly questioning, fizzing, and yet you've written very movingly about the fact that you're in the last swing of the dance. Yep. Wrote a poem about it in the last book. You did, which <clears> is <throat> the heart of things, which is a beautiful book. And I'm interested to know, have you 
made peace with who you are, first of all? No, not entirely. Um, many regrets um, about impulses, people hurt, um, wish I'd been more present to my children who love me, um, but um, because I was kind of making it up as I went along and I, <clears throat> I love my children but I think I wasn't present enough to them. Um, Having the eschatological habit, you know, if you get if you get loaded in early life with the notion that it's going somewhere at me, and so you have to live a, a purposeful life, you're looking towards the end, the meaning and all that, and you're not looking around enough, and I wish I'd done a bit more of that. Um, I wish I'd been a bit more present um, in the lives of my children while it was happening. Mm. And lots of other things as well, but I guess I was formed and uh, 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 I was made the way I was um, by factors that were never entirely under my control. But um, uh, but oh, anyway, it's been it's been exciting. The gay thing in particular, um, I realised looking back, um, a lot of the men that mentored, that forgave me, that listened to me, were probably gay men, unhappy gay men, probably. Um, some of them slightly in love with me. Um, and I was invited years ago, it broke my heart, I was invited by a gay organisation, I've forgotten what it was called now, invited who who gave me they wanted to give me a dinner to thank me for campaigning on this issue um, and we met at the National Liberal Club in Whitehall and all these old gay men from way back broken men a lot of them you know some had been in and out of jail um, and we sat around this big table and I just looked at the history of that sorrow in their faces. It was, you know, it was better. Um, but, uh, I mean, Gilgood got done for cottaging. I mean, the, the cruelty. And a lot of them uh, had kind of looked after me without putting a finger in one. I mean, I was molested by a curate friend, but on the whole, I've been looked after by a lot of those people. Um, anyway, that's kind of one now, isn't it? You have to say yes to the life you had. Thank you for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. If you like what you heard and would like to hear more, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. In the next episode... I'll be talking to the actress, Dame Eileen Atkins. In the meantime, my thanks to Harry Dundas for the sound editing and original theme music. Until next time, goodbye.